0: Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you. God, I know that all of this whole situation with coronavirus has been frustrating. I recognize that some of the changes we're making will make some people happy and others not so happy. But Father, we pray for unity in the body of Christ. We pray that you will reign and that you will rule and we want to follow you. That's our goal, is to follow you and to glorify the name of Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will ignite our hearts with the truth of the word of God this morning, in your holy and precious name, amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're continuing in our series on vision, and if you have your wonderful bulletin with you. Uh, You can see at the top, we have our vision statement there, and it is this, aspiring to proclaim the gospel, to be a refuge, and to restore our relationships with God and others. And so we're taking some of those words and we are looking at what they really mean. Last week, we talked about Holy Spirit dependence as we look at the word aspire, and today we're going to be looking at the word proclaim, and I'm titling today's message, Provocation for Proclamation. Proclamation. Provocation for proclamation, and I want to just give a quick definition of the word provoke and the word provocation, just so we can be on the same page. Many of you probably already know these definitions, but the definition for provoke is to stir up feelings, desires, or activity, and provocation is simply the act of provoking, Uh, the act of provoking. And with that idea of provocation in mind, I I want to share with you a quick story about my wonderful little son, Liam. Liam. In the beginning of coronavirus, while we were just allowed to go back to the store, uh, we took our family to Walmart. It was probably sometime around this time of. Uh, last year in April. And we walk into uh, Walmart and it's great. Everyone's socially distancing and the kids are doing well, staying alongside with us and they're following the mask thing and everything's going really well. And we, po- we buy our, our groceries or whatever we were buying and we get ready to leave and exit out of Walmart. And Liam says really loudly, what? We have the coronavirus, dad? <laughs> that provoked a response. <laughs> Right? That provoked a response from us, We're like, no, 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 we don't, let's get out of here. So we ran out, and then there's people looking at us like coronavirus, you have to coronavirus. Right? And it was just one of those things that provoked some emotion and response in people's life. And, and I'm talking about the idea of provocation because I really believe that the Holy Spirit of the living God provokes us from time to time. The Spirit of God brings about provocation in our lives. Where well, the Spirit of God is, is stirring our hearts, He's stirring our minds, He's stirring our souls with provocation. And He's moving within us and He desires for us to respond to His provocation. But many times we don't know how to respond. We don't understand what the Holy Spirit is saying and what the Holy Spirit is doing. Why are we provoked? What is it that we're to do? What is our response this and you know with Liam's thing the, the, the provocation wasn't very good on my part I was a little bit scared that everyone thought we were crazy and and everyone did think that we were crazy but when we are provoked by the Holy Spirit what do we do with that what do we do with that and I believe that our reactions expose the reality of our hearts right when the Holy Spirit is provoking us are we asking him why Or are we ignoring this provocation within our hearts? Are we saying, wow, what is going on within me? Why is my soul stirred? God, what is it that you're doing in me? What am I supposed to do? And our reactions, they really expose our hearts. Because if our hearts are to ignore God and do what we want to do, then we can really look in the mirror and say, I I don't really want to do what God wants me to do. I really don't care that He has been provoking me. I'm going to ignore Him, and the phone is ringing, and I'm just going to put it on silent. You see, we have to react differently. We have to respond to the provocation of the Lord differently. And so the question that we're going to be looking at as we dig into this portion of Scripture in Acts is how do we allow provocation to lead to proper proclamation? That's a lot of P words in there. (laughs) How do we allow provocation to lead to proper proclamation? Because I believe many times when the Holy Spirit is stirring us and provoking us, it is for the purpose of proclaiming The gospel of Jesus in one way or another. When the Holy Spirit is pricking our hearts, it is to, in one way or another, proclaim the truth of God. And so we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 32. I know it's a big passage, but it's an entire narrative of what's going on. I want to give us the full picture of what's happening with Paul in his life during this time. Acts 17, 16 through 32. The word of the Lord says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, that's Timothy and Silas, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God are overlooked. You see, Paul, he wasn't supposed to be in Athens at that time. He wasn't supposed to be there, but yet he found himself there. He found himself in an Athens that was not the seat of wisdom that it had been hundreds of years before. Athens was a place now where they just sought the newest thing. They're wondering, what is the newest thing? What is this new religion? Let's find all these different truths. And then, as we find these different truths, we can pick and choose what we want. We can have our own faith. We can believe whatever we want to believe in because there's all these other things to believe in. And no one can judge me for what I believe. My truth will be my truth. Does that sound a little familiar? That is American religion today. My truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. Don't come at me and tell me I'm wrong, and I won't come at you and tell you you're wrong. This is the Athens in which Paul stepped into. It was said that in Athens, in that time, you could find more gods than men. More gods than men. He was provoking Paul. But to respond well to the holy provocation, Paul took some time. And he did a couple of things, and Paul gives us the way in which we are to respond to this holy provocation. He was provoked as he walked into the city. And so what is it that we must do in order to respond well? And I think the first thing that Paul gives us is that we are to determine with discernment why we have been stirred. Why is the Holy Spirit stirring our hearts? What is the Holy Spirit of God doing in those moments? Remember, as I said, Paul was not supposed to be in Athens. It was not his plan to be there. There were agitators that were seeking to pursue Paul and murder him. And so Timothy and Silas said, you know what? You go ahead, go to Athens, and then we'll go to this place to make sure it's going to be safe. And then we'll call to you and you can come. It was not his plan to be there yet. He found himself there. And the the passage is very, very clear. It says that his spirit was provoked. And then immediately the text gives us the reason, as he saw that the city was full of idols. He knew why he was provoked. He had discernment to understand. Now Luke, remember, is writing this book and he is interviewing Paul in the moment. And so as Paul is sharing this with, the, with Luke, the gospel writer, he shares with him immediately why he was provoked. He might not have known right away. I'm sure that he spent some time trying to figure out with discernment, what is going on? Why is this bothering me? But within his spirit, he was provoked. It was because of the idols that he saw. He was broken because they were so numerous, these idols, that they would even have one To an unknown God. And so he was provoked within his heart. And the Greek word here for provoked, it means this, to urge. To be urged by the Holy Spirit. Within his heart he was provoked, but there's an urging that comes along with that. It is the Holy Spirit not just saying, hey, I want you to feel really uncomfortable. It's the Holy Spirit saying, okay, you're uncomfortable, now I want you to do something. Now I want you to move. Now I want you to be a part of a solution that I have set you apart for. The provocation that the Lord is stirring within Paul is a provocation for proclamation. That the Holy Spirit of God is stirring him. He sees these idols and God is calling him to do something about it. God is calling him to say something about it. But what then is he supposed to say? How is he supposed to go about doing this? And I ask you the same question. Are you asking the Lord with discernment and asking Him why you're provoked? Because as you look around in our culture, I'm sure there's provocation within you. That the Holy Spirit is breaking our hearts as we look at all the gods that that people are worshiping, money, sex, drugs, fame, fortune, whatever it is, there is a pursuit after a God in our nation that is not the God. And we tend to make God in our own image. Just as Paul was saying to them, He's not stone or gold or silver. That comes from our imagination. God is so much more than that. God is so much greater than that. But when we are provoked, it's not just for us to sit and bemoan the fact that it's so bad in our culture. It's the Holy Spirit urging us to do something. But what are we to do? I believe that provocation leads us to prayer And prayer leads us to action. Provocation leads us to prayer, and prayer leads us to action. Notice how I didn't say it leads the pastors or the elders or the children's ministry workers to action. Provocation leads us to prayer, us as a body of believers, and then leads to action. You know, here's, uh, as I was praying this morning... I believe that God gave me a prophetic word for church, not just our church, but the church in America. And I believe the prophetic word is this, that if you and I truly believe our eschatology, that things are going to get worse for the church, that we are going to be persecuted as we see that that Jesus is preparing the church in Matthew 24 through 25. No matter if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, the church is going to be persecuted. It is going to happen. It is happening all across the globe, and many people are dying because of their faith. And if we don't have a thought that it's going to happen here, we're not really reading Scripture correctly. The entire world will be, be against Christians will be against the church, and when the church is scattered, when the church can no longer gather as we are called to gather, how are we going to spread the gospel if we've just trusted our pastors to do it? Many times you say, okay, well, I'm going to come to church, I'm going to bring someone and the pastor will proclaim the gospel. Listen, it's your job and my job. If we really believe what we say about our eschatology and we really believe what Peter says about the body of believers that we are all priests in his kingdom. You and I better be people who are ready to proclaim the gospel. It's not on me alone. It's not on our elders alone. It is your job as well. If you really believe your eschatology, it will inform your missiology and you will desire to be a priest in the kingdom of God who uses your life to proclaim the gospel. And so when the Holy Spirit stirs in you a a desire where you feel this provocation, pray and ask him where you are to go and how you are to act because it is on you as much as it is on me. Prayer will lead us to action. But how do we know the heart of God? I believe Henry Nouwen says it well. He says, I have to kneel before the Father, put my ear against His chest, and listen without interruption to the heartbeat of God. Then and only then can I say carefully and very gently what I hear. Something that you will often hear me say is that intimacy is vital to the believer. Intimacy with God is vital to the believer. This image of putting our ear to the heart of God, what is God saying? What is God doing? That is an act of intimacy. It's an act of separating ourselves out, spending a large amount of time with the Lord, reading the word, praying, worshiping him and saying, God, what is your goal for my life? What are you calling me to? How am I to move in action?" Because I guarantee that as a believer, the Holy Spirit has or is or will provoke your heart and urge you to action. So our ears must be to the heart of God. And when the Holy Spirit stirs you, God stirred you for a reason. And that doesn't just mean prayer. Prayer is vital for us to hear what God is saying. But he's always going to tell us an action. We can spend a lot of time in prayer saying, Oh God, send workers. Oh God, this culture is so frustrating. Oh God, change the culture. Change this. Bring people to Jesus. And we might pray that a lot. And the Holy Spirit's saying, Okay, go. Be a part of the solution. And God will use you. We cannot ignore the provocation that God is putting on our lives. Next, what we see from Paul about how we are to respond well to this is that you and I are to live lives that lead to discussion instead of debate. You and I are to live lives of discussion rather than debate. It was Paul's reality whenever he would go to a city he would go into the synagogues first and he would spend time with the jews and he would spend time having a conversation with them and he would spend time letting them know he knows them and having this discussion about life and the reality of paul was that every jew in every synagogue after he started his missionary work knew who paul was This is why Timothy and Silas had to go before him to go and see, is it safe? Are the Jews willing to listen to him, or are they wanting to kill him? His life preceded his discussion. His life preceded everything that he did. He could not escape it because of the the powerful usage of his life that God was doing, setting up churches in these different spaces. People knew who who, who he was. But he still went into the synagogues to reason. And his life provided the impetus for discussion, where he had the right to say, they asked questions, why in the world, you, Paul, of all people, who studied under the greatest rabbi of our day, how could you possibly be a Christian? And his life led to discussion. He didn't try to debate them or force Jesus down their throat. He simply lived his life and said, okay, let's have a discussion. Let's dialogue about it. And discussion is so much more important than debate. Are we going to debate with people? People are going to poke us and try and debate us. Yes, they will. But we need to back down from a debate and stop trying to be angry with people and say, you know what, I love you enough, let's have a discussion Look at what He's done in my life. Look at what the Lord has done. You probably remember, if you have a relationship with me, where I was. But now look at where I am. Only God could do that. Your life will precede your discussion. And the word reason here, where it says that He reasoned with them, it means not only sharing with cognitive reason, but also a civil discourse between two parties. Paul needed to show and live the gospel, not just talk about it. It was a civil discussion. When that word reason is there, the Greek is not that he was debating, it was that he was purposely having a civil discussion. Paul knew that the inciting incident for apologetics is a life, not a mouth. Now we need to use our words, we need to speak. It's not about being mute or silent. But the inciting incident for a story, if you're aware, is that thing that sparks the story. It's that thing that, that brings about the tension of the story. What's going to happen next? I'm really excited about this story because the inciting incident, no matter what it is, in, in, uh, in, in all kinds of different movies, you can see this in all kinds of different stories and books You know, the inciting incident in Lion King was Mufasa's death. That's what started the journey of Simba into his understanding of who he was. That's an inciting incident. And the inciting incident for apologetics is a life, not a mouth. We see this in 1 Peter where it talks about the idea of being surrendered to God and that people will begin to ask a question as to why you're living the way you're living. And that will bring about the opportunity for apologetics. Your life speaks louder than your words, and that's something that we have got to grasp as the church. The reason why this culture and these generations are no longer flooding to come to church to hear about Jesus is because when people talk to them about Jesus and their life does not match up, they say that can't be real. Okay, yeah, you had some really good reasoning, you had some really good thoughts, those are some things that I'm struggling to try and, you know, respond to, but your life Your life doesn't match up with your words. So I'm not going to listen to what you say. Our life is the inciting incident to our apologetics. How did he respond? When Paul saw the brokenness in Athens, when he was welcomed into the Areopagus, how did he respond to those who did not know Jesus? Did he stand up and say, Oh, you guys are so terrible. I can't believe you believe in all this stuff. You're all going to hell. That's not how he responded at all. He responded in love. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son, he didn't give a stern slap. He gave love. He offered the truth of the gospel with his life and had a warm welcome, welcoming them in. And I believe how we react to sin shows us how we view God. It shows us how we view God. Do we view God as a loving father who is wooing people to himself or do we see a god who is consistently angry always trying to punch people in the mouth with their mess we see and have love for the brokenness of the world and desire for them to come to christ or are we just trying to prove that we're right because if we're trying to prove that we're right we're missing the point We're missing the point altogether. Our missiology in the States needs to be the same as it is overseas. What do we do as a missions movement overseas? We go into a community of people. We purposely move ourselves as missionaries. We go to a different place. And we go among them, serving, loving, ministering to them, offering them help, hope, and healing in Christ's name. And when we offer that help and hope and healing they ask our missionaries questions why would you do this? Why would you set up a clinic for our medical needs for free? How could you do, why would you do this? And it opens a great discussion about the gospel. Our missiology needs to be the same. We live in a culture that is different than it was 50 to 60 years ago. We need to engage it differently. We need to spend time knowing people, understanding the culture. Look at what First Peter does say. It says, but, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. First, have intimacy with God and know who he is. Then he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. That is how we are to defend our faith. Because the only time this word apologia, the Greek word for defense, shows up in the Bible is right here. If we're going to build our understanding of apologetics, we better do it from the Bible and not from our mind. The Bible says that we are to bring a defense, and it is to be with gentleness and respect. It's not to be angry. It's not to berate. It's not to be a jerk about it. Because apologetics is a defense, not a debate. Let me give you a really quick story. When I was at the University of Pittsburgh, there were these traveling evangelists who would come, and they would set up these boxes, and they would scream at students, literally scream and they would have signs you're going to hell if you're gay you're going to hell because you don't know and they were shouting at people and yelling at people and as students were walking he said you're probably going to hell young man and so I I asked him a question I said let's let's step down off of this box for a second I say do you have a minute to talk with me so we went over here and and I began to have a conversation with him and I said how effective has this been he said, well, in 10 years, I saw one person come to Jesus. So, said, wow, 10 years? 10 years, one person? I'm sure heaven has rejoiced in that. But if you would sit down and develop relationships with these college students, and you would ask them questions, and you would live your life among them, it'll change. When our church decided to do that, we saw 10, and then 20, and then 30 people come to Christ. And we baptized them in public because we built a relationship. We had conversations with them. And then my next question for this preacher was this. I said, so when someone does come to Christ, how do you help them grow? Oh, well, they know Jesus. It's over. i just go on to the next college. This person needs to grow in their faith. They need to understand where the churches are. They need to understand how to have conversations about Jesus with other people. They need to grow. Do you even know what churches are around here? Do you even know what their doctrines are? Do you even know how to help this person? Oh, no. I never thought about that. You see, we need to live our apologetic before we can talk about it. And when our lives attract people to ask us questions built on relationship, they will see Jesus. And when they ask us questions, that is where we are to give a defense. And here, let me remind you and remind myself that you as a human being are not the convictor of sin. The Holy Spirit is the convictor of sin. Too often, we go into this evangelistic moment with just our minds. We're not even asking the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. We're not even asking the Holy Spirit to bring the conviction. We go in with this sense of, man, I'm so smart. I've studied all this stuff, which is good. It is good to study that stuff. That's not what I'm saying. But we go into those places and we say, man, I'm going to bring people to Jesus today. Who's bringing people to Jesus? It's not you. If someone comes to Jesus, that has very little to do with you and everything to do with the Holy Spirit. So why don't you ask the Holy Spirit what He wants to say to help bring about that conviction, right? That's an important piece of understanding what we are to do, how we are to follow with the provocation. We need to seek to know Him. You see, this idea of the discussion being a defense also has Paul understanding the culture around him. Understanding the culture around him. He knew these people. He knew what they were thinking. He understood their desire for new knowledge. He understood the culture. He was a genius of the Hebrew culture and the Greco-Roman culture. He, in this moment, even quoted their their philosophers. (laughs) It's a hard word to say. He quoted them to them. And he used their own culture to draw their hearts in. He wasn't just trying to reason with their mind. He began to go after their hearts. And when the head cannot be reasoned with, we must appeal to the heart. If we're in a discussion with someone and clearly they're not getting what we're, what we're saying, they're not picking up what we're putting down, we need to stop trying to be in their head and start going after their heart. Say, listen, you know, you may not believe all the things that I can try and reason into your mind. But I'm sure you felt empty. I'm sure you felt lost. I'm sure there's moments where you question why you're even alive. Let's talk about those questions. Let's talk about where I felt in my own story, those same feelings. You go after the heart. But that came with knowing. Knowing. And it came with an understanding of the culture around him. He knew how to speak directly to their hearts because he spent time with them. One of the most dangerous things that happens in the church today is that we do not spend time with unbelievers. We do not purposely put ourselves in spaces where unbelievers are. We're always in our holy huddles where we go to five different small groups and and two different Bible studies and we watch our church online or we go to our church and watch three other churches online and we listen to podcasts all the time and but we're not spending time with unbelievers. If we're gonna know the culture, if we're gonna show them that we love them as people and not as projects, we need to be with them. We need to find ways to engage unbelievers. Maybe that's you, you have the opportunity to go and make your office at Starbucks or another coffee place in the area, you know, you could take a day and sit there, and you know, one of the things I did at the University of Pittsburgh is I wrote my sermons in Starbucks. I had these huge piles of commentaries that were obviously the Bible, and I would just sit and write, and you would be shocked how many people came and said, what are you writing about? Is this for your religious class? Are you... Are you a professor of religions? No, let's sit and talk. Let's have a conversation. And man, there are so many great opportunities that I had to share the gospel. I miss those times where I can be with unbelievers in that amount. And I'm trying slowly to adjust my way of living as a pastor with my hours to be with unbelievers. Because you might be shocked, but I spend most of my time with believers. (laughs) We need to be where the people who do not know Jesus are. We should know them. We should know the culture well enough to appeal to the heart of the culture. Paul reasoned to their hearts. He responded to the provocation with loving proclamation. But he also used the language of culture. And so you and I, in order to use this provocation for proclamation, we must use the language of culture to speak life into culture. We must understand the culture. Now hear me. We do not ever change the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died. He rose. He lives within us. He challenges us to sanctification and holiness. That we will always be on a trajectory of growth. And if we're not on a trajectory of growth in our faith with Jesus, we remain stagnant. And if we remain stagnant, we're actually going backwards. But we need to utilize the language of culture. He he used the, the philosopher's voice when he was explaining to them who Jesus is. So often as believers, we try to remove ourselves so far from culture that we have no idea the language we have no idea how to proclaim the message of Jesus. We never change the message, but we should always change the method. And we get so stuck in our own ways. And we say, well, we want people to come to Jesus. Are you willing to change? Are you even willing to change how you do church? In order for when you see someone who you invite to church to be with the community of believers, but they're turned off by this or that, part of the church is is the church willing to adjust to culture. Not changing the message, just changing the method. That is a vital thing that we need to ask ourselves because if we truly care about people coming to Christ, we won't care what songs we sing. We'll care about people knowing who Jesus is. That's what we'll care about. We'll care about people coming to Christ and part of that is adjusting to culture. Don't run away from culture. Engage culture. Again, look at the missiology of our missionary work. What happens when a missionary goes to a different country? Do they go and dress and talk like an American purposely and look at people and say, why don't you speak English? You need to speak my language. No, we learn their language. We learn how to dress. We learn how to be proper in their particular culture. We become cultural geniuses of the spaces in which we're going to minister. And our missiology needs to not be different in America. We need to have a cultural understanding to bring emphasis and power to our missiology. We never should be in the world, or of the world rather, but we do need to be in the world. We need to not be ignorant about what's going on around us. Our missiology needs to be the same across the board. You see, our eschatology informs our missiology, and our missiology should inform our ecclesiology. Our belief of the end times should drive us to a passionate pursuit of people coming to Christ before the end comes. Because you and I have a responsibility to do that. That's informing our missiology. And when our missiology is informed and understanding how we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, that is how we should develop our ecclesiology, how we develop how we do church. You see, in the early church, they met together in small groups and they invited people to come over for meals because who doesn't want to eat? Right? And they're like, wow, you should see Grandma Myrtle's, you know, awesome pie. You should come try it. I don't know if there was a woman named Myrtle back then, but. There was 50 years ago, but the reality is, you invite people into your home and share with them the truth of the gospel by loving them, by having a meal. They understood what was culturally drawing people into the gospel, and they spoke that language, and they invited people in one by one by one, and the church grew exponentially. I know I'm taking a lot of time on this, but it's so important. I remember in, my, in Nyack, uh, our professor, his name was Dr. Larry Poston, and he loved teaching on missiology. He loved it. And one of the things he said in his missiology class was it's a lot, it's a lot more important to have exponential growth in our missiology than these people who are preaching and proclaiming the gospel to thousands of people. Right, Billy Graham is great, and he's like, and that is a phenomenal ministry, and that should never stop. But he did a mathematical comparison and said, if this happens where he goes around to the world, he could probably be used by God to get 100,000 people max into heaven. The Holy Spirit does that with him. He said, but if a body of believers is willing to meet together, maybe there's two that meet together, and they say, you know what, we're going to bring one other person and proclaim the gospel to them, and they come to Christ. And then those four people do it to another person. That's eight, 16. You could do the math. And he said, you could spend almost a 1,000 years trying to do the one process, or you can see the entire world come to Christ in about 15 years. That's missiology. That's understanding who we are as the body of Christ as believers. And the math worked out. I tried it. I'm not really good at math, but I use a calculator. Paul was able to leverage his knowledge to help those in his hearing to see who Jesus really is. He leveraged his life. He leveraged his knowledge. He loved people to the point where he said, you are a person, not a project. And not everyone was saved, as it clearly says. They made fun of him. But there were people who wanted to know more. And we know later in the book of Acts that those people came To know Jesus. And they planted a church. And that church grew exponentially. Because it was one to one. To two to two to four to eight. Phenomenal growth in the church. You and I have a responsibility to be priests in the kingdom. You cannot hope and pray and put all of the the proclamation of the gospel upon your pastor. Or the staff or the elders. You have a role. You have a role. Allow the Spirit of God to allow your life to lead people to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. I thank you for this time that we have to open up the Scriptures and proclaim the truth of the Gospel and the Word of God. I pray that you'll use my life that I will purposely spend more time with unbelievers. That I will be able to speak the gospel in a language that is understood by today's culture. And I pray the same for each and every one of us in this room and those watching online. May we see that we have a role to play. And may our hearts be emboldened and impassioned with this provocation from the Holy Spirit. And may we be provoked to proclaim your truth.